The Defense Department has been under-investing in facility upkeep for years, and so its maintenance backlog is growing each year. DOD now says it's rolling out new tools that won't necessarily solve that problem, but they will help officials make better decisions on where to spend the dollars they do get. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. According to the Government Accountability Office, the department has a maintenance backlog of at least $137 billion. But that figure is almost certainly an undercount. For one thing, it's based on 2020 data. For another, it doesn't include the facilities that are already past their useful lifespans. And an estimated 30% of the department's facilities fall into that category. One reason the problem is getting worse is that the department has consistently under-budgeted for what its own facility sustainment model says is needed to keep its structures in good working order. And since funding has proven to be a difficult challenge, officials say they're now pivoting to a new model, focusing their limited sustainment dollars on the facilities that matter most. Brendan Owens is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations, and Environment. So the sustainment management system that we are developing and will be implementing is is something that I think the the Marines have done a very good job of understanding, that facilities optimization is not a total pounds of dollars game. It's much more about how we look at recapitalization over time and then at a high level making sure that we have the sustainment of facilities so that the degradation doesn't begin. The new sustainment management system isn't planned to be fully in place until 2026, but the department is asking Congress for more funding this year to speed up its development. Officials say the biggest change is managing and prioritizing DOD's facility sustainment dollars with more granular data rather than treating all buildings equally in one big portfolio. We have taken an approach that the way that we should sustain our facilities is by calculating the total number of dollars that's required based on a percentage of the plant replacement value. While it might have served DOD uh, in the past, I don't think that's a, a way ahead that's sustainable. We've got a backlog that is paralyzingly large, and, and we have a, a method of calculating funding that is not aligned with the way that buildings fail, because buildings don't fail linearly. They fail in sort of episodic functions over the course of time in a downward degradation. And if you allow that degradation to begin, you never get those buildings back up to what they were or what they should have been again uh, without a major recapitalization. And that's not a linear thing. It's a it's a capital reinvestment strategy. The Air Force has already started some initial efforts to move to a more targeted, prioritized approach to how it spends its facility sustainment, restoration, and modernization dollars. That service created a new infrastructure investment strategy in 2019 and expects to update it this year. Ravi Chaudhry, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Energy Installations and Environment, says the strategy aims to prioritize spending that most directly impacts a given installation's primary mission and give local commanders more discretion over infrastructure projects. And what that does is going to take a look at well, what our right size is going to be and what type of facilities need to go away to scale and start getting at this maintenance issue. Uh, one, one of the areas that I, I want to focus in on, I can give you an example of, is in our unaccompanied housing. And we've had a lot of discussion on that. Um, but currently, we, we have launched a, a dormitory master plan to take a look at what, what our program schedule is going to be to do that. And, and what we found when we did that is that we need to invest a lot more. Not hard to uh, discern. Uh, but right now, we're targeting... Uh, to correct that, $1.7 billion, uh, in FSRM from 20, FY22 to 20. 
6. And that's a fourfold increase. So uh, we, we've identified it, characterized it, and now we're putting in the right investments to get us to where we need to be. Meanwhile, the Marine Corps' early work, using what that service calls its readiness maximization tool, is focused on driving maintenance dollars toward what officials deem to be their most important facilities. The service started implementing that strategy at the beginning of this fiscal year, says Meredith Berger, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Installations, Energy, and Environment. What it does is it looks at the whole pile of the FSRM uh, money that is there and allows um, puts a little money um, towards sustainment where it will actually sustain, allowing more money to go towards the restoration and modernization parts of that uh, pile of funding mm-hmm. so that there is more good money going towards good, so towards the facilities that count uh, more, as my colleagues were talking about. Um, this is a tool that we are looking at, learning from it. It is a tool that informs the way the decisions are made, um, but it will help us as we think about the 30-year infrastructure plan uh, to make sure that we are aligning the best dollars in the best places, so we're putting those appropriate dollars where they count, um, and then aligning risk, mission assurance, all of the other considerations so that we have a holistic approach that anticipates what we need in this in this look like we would fund another platform. GAO acknowledges that adequately funding upkeep for DOD facilities is a massive challenge, partly because of the sheer size of the portfolio. The department estimates it owns 668,000 facilities around the world, with a total plant replacement value of $1.8 trillion. But GAO's Elizabeth Field says more data-driven prioritization would certainly help matters. When we conducted our review of DOD's deferred maintenance backlog, we found that the facilities that are so often the first to lose out on funding are the ones most directly tied to quality of life. Barracks, where junior enlisted service members live, for example, or child care centers. The effects of this are clear. In discussion groups we have held at military installations around the country, Service members have consistently told us that the condition of their housing, whether government-owned or privatized, impacts their perception of the military and, in some cases, their decision on whether to re-enlist. As one young soldier said to us, if we get the bare minimum in the barracks, the Army will get the bare minimum from us. The readiness implications of this problem are, I think, obvious. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to 
be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. 
And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.